Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. Okay, this is a big one. My guest today on the podcast is none other than Isaac Held. He might not be a household name, so if you don't work in climate science, you might not have heard of him. But if I had to name a single living climate scientist whose work I most admire, it would probably be Isaac Held. Is that a cheesy thing to say? It's true, though. I might be biased, as I consider Isaac a mentor of mine, and he's had an enormous influence on my own work and my career, but he's in the National Academy of Sciences, among many other honors, so I'm not alone in holding Isaac in such high esteem. Isaac has spent almost his whole career at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, GFDL, which is part of the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, on a campus that's part of Princeton University. So until his recent retirement, Isaac was a civil servant of the federal government, but also served as a faculty member at Princeton, and in that capacity, he supervised a long list of PhD students who went on to be leaders in our field all over the U.S. and the world. Isaac has made many, many amazingly original, field-changing contributions on a wide range of topics in climate science. An incomplete list of these topics includes the Hadley Circulation, the role of mid-latitude eddies in the global climate, deep convection and tropical meteorology, water vapor and climate feedbacks, the climate of the Sahel in West Africa, and tropical cyclones or hurricanes. And one of the things that amazes me about Isaac's research record is how many times he started work on a new problem while at the same time keeping up his steady progress on problems he'd been working on before. His breadth and intellectual courage in branching out and yet his persistent long-term focus on difficult problems are both things many of us could learn from. But maybe what distinguishes Isaac most, beyond the volume of his contributions or their quality or influence, remarkable though all those are, is the thoughtful, philosophical, and principled approach he takes to science. The way Isaac works, and the way he's taught many of us in the field to try to work as well, is not an accident of personality or training, it's a product of conscious and deep thought about how we can best understand a complex system, that is, the climate, on which we can't do experiments directly, but only on mathematical models as proxies of that system. So Isaac has been the field's most clear and outspoken advocate for the notion of a hierarchy of models at different levels of complexity as the only way to achieve true understanding. So we get into a lot of this in the conversation after starting with Isaac's origin story as the child of Holocaust survivors growing up in Minneapolis, St. Paul. He learned there that he was good at math, and then after switching to physics, he became fascinated with statistical mechanics where one could understand the macroscopic properties of a system even though its detailed microscopic behavior might be inscrutable, sort of like the climate. So once he switched to studying the atmosphere, this led him to be fascinated with the climate but not so much with weather, as he explains. And this philosophical preference made him a good match with his PhD thesis advisor at Princeton, who was Suki Manabi, now world famous, because he, Manabi that is, just won the Nobel Prize in Physics this year, 2021. Later in the interview, we talk about the climate crisis as a human phenomenon and the interaction of science and politics around it. And Isaac explains why he hasn't cultivated a media presence, but why he did, for many years, 
write a blog aimed at making the latest research findings more accessible, especially to students in the field. You can find that blog online now. Just Google Isaac Held's blog. That's easier than writing the address down. And I've been teaching a climate course to undergraduates this semester and have found this blog a truly valuable resource, and I love to read it myself. It's crystal clear. Anyway, let me stop there so you can hear from Isaac himself. It was a profound honor for me to record this interview, truly, and it gives me joy to bring it to you. So without further ado, here's a good long conversation with the world-leading climate scientist, Isaac Held. First of all, thanks so much for doing this, Isaac. And um, oh, Thanks for asking. I hope I have something interesting to say, but I guess I, we'll find I, out. <laughs> I'm not too worried about, about that. The way we like to do this, if you're amenable to it, is to start with your biography at some and take it at some leisure mm -hmm. from the beginning. Sure. So where, where were you born? I was born in Germany. This is 1948, so I'm about, I'll be turning 73 in a few weeks. So this was actually in a refugee camp after the yeah. World War II. And it's kind of, it was born in 1948. I, I should do some research on the history here because I'm not, my image of what was going on after the war doesn't include the idea that there were still refugee camps operating. But your parents were survivors. Right. Where were they and where were yeah. they from originally? Uh, Poland and Germany. My uh, yeah. father died shortly after we managed to get to the United States, and so I was raised by my my brother and I were raised by our mother, and so we eventually got to the United States in 1950 or 51, I think. You had to have a job lined up, as my father had to have a, in order to get to immigrate to the U.S., and I guess it took a while for the refugee organizations or whatever group was helping us to find a job for my father. and. We ended up in St. Paul in uh, Minnesota. There's a little story there that I think kind of interesting. Uh, my mother was fond of telling this story, and I'm 95% sure that it's true, that the job that my father had lined up originally was in Seattle, uh -huh. actually. But then as we were going through immigration in New York City, you know, we didn't know the difference between Seattle and any other city. And there was a family there that had uh, relatives basically waiting in line with us, I think, they had relatives in Seattle. My parents started talking to them, and they decided to switch jobs. They had a job lined up in St. Paul. And so we ended up in St. Paul just through that conversation in the immigration center in New York City. Otherwise, I would have grown up in Seattle, I guess, in which case my life would have been very different, presumably. And you said, and wait, I'm, so you said, how did you arrange a job? Oh, you said there's some organization that arranged a job? I mean, right. it must have been Yeah, so you had to come into to... the country. Right. You had to come into the country with the job lined up waiting for you somehow. I'm sure there was some refugee organization that helped in that regard. Did you know much? Uh, did your mother tell you much about your parents' life before the war? No, she didn't. Uh, that was the last thing she wanted to talk to us kids about. Yeah. I imagine it was very difficult. I mean, extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. Time. We lost most of our relatives, of course. And yeah. She didn't want to talk about it. So I just have a relatively vague idea of what she yeah. went through. But she was in Auschwitz and she was rescued by the Russian army yeah. in Auschwitz. So I have a soft spot in my heart for the Russian army, which I don't think very <laughs> many people have. But, uh, right. No. <laughs> 
But I'm pretty sure the story about Seattle is correct because she once said that you also had a, a, a place to live lined up for you. And she said our place was in uh, the St. Anne's neighborhood, I think it was, or St. Uh-huh. Anne's Hill. Yep, and I actually yep, looked I that up. I'm not that familiar with Seattle, but... It's not hard to believe it because there's so many stories mm-hmm. of so many things happening at that moment. I mean, yeah, so many people's names were changed, right? So many. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I think of that when I, I guess, you know, the unpredictability of life and how, how hard it is to plan your future when it really depends on, I guess we call them tipping points in the climate community nowadays. <laughs> you know, something happens and your life goes one way or the other. And that happens to all of us. So anyway, we ended up growing up in uh, St. Paul. Wait, so I want to ask about growing up in St. Paul in a minute, but I sure. but I just want to mm-hmm. say that what your story makes me think of random individual things, but I mean, mm-hmm. major catastrophic global scale sure. human events that did these things to a lot right. of people. And that seems increasingly relevant mm-hmm. these days on a larger scale as, as life right. in the US and elsewhere it starts to look crazy in a way it I think hasn't since that time. Yeah, so I, so I think about these things a lot, the, mm-hmm. the precedent. Yes. You know, the experience of people of that generation starts to seem to me mm-hmm. relevant in a way that's less theoretical than it used to. Right. So, I mean, some of life's unpredictability can be these huge events affecting large parts of the world, but it can also be these little things yeah. in your individual life that make a big difference as well. Sure. Which are uncontrollable. Okay. So, St. Paul. Mm-hmm. So, that's all you remember, right? Mm-hmm. You obviously don't remember. You were too young when you mm-hmm. left. Yeah. No, I have no memory. Your, yeah. Yeah. So we grew up in a mixed neighborhood. It was part Jewish, part uh, African-American. Uh, it was a rather poor neighborhood. As I think I mentioned, my father died relatively soon after we arrived in the country. And so mm-hmm. everything uh, depended on my mother. And uh, looking back, it was the pressure on her must have been very amazing, the stress. But uh, yeah. we didn't really feel it at the time. She just did a wonderful job. But, you know, we were very poor, but we didn't feel poor. We had the neighborhood was pretty friendly. The schools were pretty good. There wasn't that much bullying going on, for example. Mm. So I have to say it was a, a nice childhood. And uh, my brother and I had the job of uh, doing well in school. That's all. Yeah. My mother and others cared about that. Anything else like sports or helping out at home, or that just got in the way. 100% mm. of our time mm. was meant to be devoted to our schoolwork and to be excellent. Yeah. And so I naturally became very studious, and, and I, um, I skipped a grade early on. I think it was second grade, and so I was always the smallest in class and naturally shy and introverted. So I think that contributed to uh, my personality. I just focused on my schoolwork. And, How did your mom um, make a living? How did she support you? Uh, she was a seamstress. She managed to get a job at a department store mm-hmm. downtown St. Paul. Of course, she worked in the evenings as a seamstress as well. Mm-hmm. This was when I was just starting high school. She remarried, and we basically moved to uh, the Minneapolis suburbs, and her life changed mm. quite a bit. Yeah, so early on in school, I realized that I was very good at math for some reason, something that I got recognition for, and uh, so I focused on it. It wasn't science at that point. It was just math, mm. and that persisted through high school. Mm. I was pretty vague in what I wanted to do with my life, but it, it revolved around something to do with mathematics. And then I went to school at the University of Minnesota, which is what people did in our neighborhood. We didn't really think about going off to some Ivy League school or something. That seemed to be what the children of the uh, lawyers and doctors did in our, that we did. And the University of Minnesota was almost free. It was like $100 per semester. And then I got a little fellowship. So, And did you live at home um, while you went there? 
Yeah, I did. Yeah. University of Minnesota was great for me. I got to know some uh, mathematics professors. And uh, in my second year, I had a wonderful physics professor who was sort of an advanced course in uh, modern physics and relativity and quantum mechanics and stuff like that. And I became fascinated by that, that you could apply mathematics. He was very much a theoretical physicist. And I realized you could. Have, this was a wonderful application of mathematics to the real world. And so then I basically switched to theoretical physics. Right. And this point. is about the mid-60s at this point, if I'm doing the math? University of Minnesota, I guess I graduated in uh, about 69. Okay. Yeah, so it was second half of the 60s. Then I went off to graduate school in theoretical physics. So this was now at the peak of the Vietnam War, and there was a draft, and I got a number, which didn't look very promising in the draft. Yeah. But I ended up at uh, Stony Brook in New York for a couple of complicated reasons. One is that I got this fellowship, which allowed me to work with C.N. Yang, who was a famous theoretical physicist. Uh The whole university, and especially the physics department, were just getting off the ground at that point. They wanted to make it the Berkeley of the East Coast. Yeah. I think they gave up on that idea after a while. But part of the reason I went there was to work with C.N. Yang. And the other part was that I knew some people who were at Stony Brook, and they thought that the faculty was receptive to helping people out with extra teaching assistantships and things like that that would make uh-huh. it potentially possible to get a draft deferment. And I want to understand that. So you're saying just being enrolled in graduate school wouldn't get you drafted? Not a, being a, not being a TA time. would? Not just a regular TA, but you had to be like a, almost a full-time teacher. I see. So it give you like a double TA, I which see. would um, theoretically make it uh, likelier. That, but actually, that didn't work in my case. I was drafted and uh, went to get my physical, and I ended up being 4F in my physical. And so then I got a deferment. But 4F I never, means, you, means you don't pass the... Right. You're not qualified for health reasons of some kind. or I was never sure exactly what the reason was. It wasn't the kind of thing I wanted to uh, explore too much because there's always a potential that it was (laughs) a mistake, (laughs) paperwork problem. So I just let it go. And that was another one of these tipping points, I guess. So being a college student at that time... I mean, the late sixties, I think. Yeah. The late sixties, yeah. So did, yeah, this was you... like Cambodia and Kent State. Uh, this was the peak of the uh, activism. So yeah, you must have been affected by, or did you just have your head down and you're doing math, or did you, you know? Did this no, you? no, there's no way to uh, not be affected by it. At least at Stony Brook, which was, uh, in my understanding, one of the most activist campuses anywhere. What about in Minneapolis? Basi- there, I wasn't that much affected by it. Maybe it was because I was living at home. I don't know. But, yeah. uh, but then I was on my own in, in graduate school, and all my friends were active in the anti-war movement. And school of you know, lectures, the whole thing basically shut down for a while after Kent State, as I recall. And wow. There's no way not to be affected by it. I wasn't a leader in any way, but I participated like a lot of people did. Yeah. Uh, and it affected my life in uh, retrospect in that I... Uh, I think I was doing well in graduate school in theoretical physics, but Mm. I then uh, started questioning why I was doing it. Mm. And I couldn't really explain to my friends or my family what it was I was doing. 
It was pretty um, esoteric in the sense that uh, Professor Yang was best known for his work in quantum field theory, but he was also very involved in statistical mechanics, especially of quantum mechanical systems, and he was famous for that as well. And so that's the direction we went into in the projects I was working on. So I was trying to derive the um, from the microscopic quantum mechanics to try to derive the thermodynamics of very simple quantum systems exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea that thermodynamics is a macroscopic description of these systems that have all this microscopic complexity, and that fast yeah. oh, always fascinated me. And that's what so I was like, working on. So, like, what's the equation with. of state or something? Or like exactly for a one. Dim- and at that time, uh, Yang was working on one-dimensional quantum mechanical systems. So you just have these particles mm-hmm. moving on a line, interacting with each other. Yeah. But in quantum mechanics, they can do strange things. You you can't explain why you're doing that very well to uh, friends or family. I really had no idea why I was doing it either, other than being fascinated by statistical mechanics. And uh, so I started looking for something else at the time. But But wait, and you're saying that that was in part because of all the war stuff? I mean, that that made you Yeah, well, I can... I think it's not improbable that I would have stuck to more traditional theoretical physics if uh-huh. there wasn't all that other stuff going on. Yeah, it just made it okay. easier to think about alternatives. Yeah, It's something I spent a lot of time studying as an undergraduate as well, and I took some extra reading courses from yeah. professors I liked there and uh, looked at some standard textbooks. And I remember working through every single problem in these textbooks and keeping them on file. And wow. It was extremely systematic. In my study, of, I was really fascinated at how concepts like entropy and temperature, which are very emergent concepts, they you can't talk about the entropy of a single molecule or the temperature of right. a single molecule. Right. I remember being fascinated by the fact that temperature is really the uh, derivative of the entropy with respect to the energy. Uh-huh. That really threw me. And, and that you could talk about negative temperatures. You know, temperatures don't have to be positive. Right. So I was really interested in how this idea of emergent concepts that you could rigorously, and the key to me was that it was essentially rigorous, derive these emergent concepts to describe these incredibly complex systems when you look at it in detail. And that stuck with me. So I started, even at that time, thinking about turbulence a little bit, and I tried to do a little reading in graduate school as well. And that got me, when I started looking around for something else, I spent a lot of time in the library looking at this is at Stony Brook now. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, I better look for something that I can justify to myself is worthwhile and uh, something I could devote my life to. And so I was going from this turbulence perspective, and I read a few things. One was plasma physics and how controlled fusion research required understanding the turbulence and the yeah. tokamaks and stuff like that. Yeah. So I did some reading on plasma physics. And the other thing I did was I found some books about the atmosphere and the oceans, and in particular, global warming at that time. There was a, a SMIC report. I don't know if that rings a bell. That's an acronym. Yep. I don't remember what it stands for. Yeah, I don't remember either, uh, but I, I this was read before, up on a history like, recently. This rep- was before the Charney Report and stuff like that. Well, it was just before the Charney Report, right? Yeah, Charney a couple report of years, was, I think. Yeah. Maybe one or two years. Yeah. You know, uh, Suki Manabe had an article in there. So I read it through the whole thing, and I really liked Suki's article, the idea that you could simulate the climate system on the computer with all the turbulent, chaotic glory. And, and that seemed like a very logical way of proceeding. And, and so he, I was arranged GF- to visit, he was already yeah, he was a, a GFL. Yeah. In Princeton, yeah. So I was still at Stony Brook uh, at that time, but I arranged a visit to Princeton because I could kill two birds with one stone. I could visit the plasma physics laboratory. 
or they did also right. on the Princeton campus, they did research right. on controlled fusion. It's probably the premier place in the world at that time. And then there was to visit Manabe and others yeah. at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory. And they had recently started a program in conjunction with Princeton, which was called the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Program, a graduate program. And, and how long had GFDL so, actually been there? I mean, I guess it was the out, was it the outgrowth of like the Institute for Advanced Studies stuff in the 50s? Was it directly? Did it, it was directly connected to that because uh, Joe Smagorinsky was part of that advanced studies group with Charney and Phillips yeah, right, and right, that right. von Neumann had set up. The idea that, as you know, you could use you know, a um, very logical first application of computers would be to weather prediction. But he also yeah. talked about what he called the infinite forecast, yeah. which is what we now call the climate problem. You can run these things forever and study the statistics of the atmosphere. So GFDL had been around by this mm-hmm. time a little while anyway. I mean, it yeah, they had started out in Washington as a branch of the Weather Bureau. And then okay. because of Joe Smogorinsky's connection to Princeton, he had some connections and was able to build a very nice institution there. Was it the same uh, building on your first visit as it is? Yeah, it's always been the same building. Wow, okay. Uh, I never knew exactly how old it was. Yeah. It was a couple of years old at the time. The graduate program had only had four or five students by the time I mm. arrived. And so I visited both places, and I don't know if it was the science, I just found the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory much friendlier, and they seemed to mm. be more interested in me. Mm. And they arranged a little coffee hour, and I got to meet a lot of people who were. So when we went to plasma physics, they, you know, I went on a little tour of their experiment along with a lot of other people, and mm-hmm. I didn't get very much personal attention. So that's another tipping point in my life. It could have gone either way if I would have. At that point, it wasn't making a clear distinction that one would be yeah. better for me than the other. Yeah. So I ended up going to graduate school at Princeton. Like, who were the so, faculty? Manabe yeah. and Smagorinsky? I mean, who, Smagorinsky, uh, who's the first director of the laboratory. He uh, was my initial advisor. He taught a course, sort of an overview of meteorology. Suki taught a course. Uh, Yoshi Kurahara, who's uh, mm-hmm. worked on her hurricane modeling, yeah. taught a very nice course on uh, GFD. I think you still have the notes from that course, huh. Geophysical Fluid Dynamics. I'm trying to think of George Miller oh, yeah. taught at the time as well. And yeah. Some other people who were just arriving, I don't know if they were teaching with George Philander, Isidore Orlansky. Uh-huh. Obramort also taught a course on observations in the atmosphere. So there's enough, but a lot of it was uh, reading and talk. I talked a lot to Suki. I, I switched over gradually from Smogorinsky to Suki Manabe as an advisor because that was a big uh, breakthrough for me because I really enjoyed the way Suki um, thought about the climate system. It was intuitive on the one hand, and it would seem kind of hand-wavy if you just talked to him casually, but then he it was all based on his experience building these climate models, these comprehensive yeah. climate models. I think in the world, he was probably the most familiar with climate modeling and uh, what you could learn from it. And as a result, because he would basically play with the models constantly, he I think he understood how things fit together and mm. what was important, what wasn't important, mm. better than anyone else that I had met at that time, certainly. Mm. Anyway, so that was great for me. And he was completely hands-off. He wasn't interested in writing papers together specifically. I was just yeah. looking at your list of publications right. to prepare for this, and I saw that there wasn't right. one with him, at least right. not in the early years. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe that was unfortunate. And I think that was coming from both of our sides, maybe. But 
I think we're similar. So if you look at Suki's papers, a very large percentage of them, he's the first author. Yeah. He li- he would like to be in control of uh, mm. of the work. At least initially, I was, I think, the same way. I wanted to have control of the project. So I liked the hands-off approach that Suki, he gave me the freedom to just go off on my own. And I ended up having Max Suarez as an office mate. I don't know how well yeah. you know Max, but... Not very well. He's a great friend still. That turned out to be a start of a great friendship. And we started working together. We started building little models together. And, I, well, um, I mean, maybe something we could talk mm-hmm. about either now or later, but I mean, besides mm-hmm. Suki's style or your style, I mean, the other thing mm-hmm. from my perspective today hearing this is that mm-hmm. even if you wanted to be, it'd almost be impossible to operate the way he did now. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you could do it at Princeton. I don't know because of how the AOS program works. Mm-hmm. But in most places, you know, you have a grant and you have to write papers and the advisor yeah. can't really detach themselves because right. it just becomes... I don't think anyone operates that way anymore. But well, Suki, A lot of us would like to, but it... Yeah, I mean, the distinctive thing of GFDL at the time, and this is the way Joe set it up, which was pretty amazing that he could do it, was that there was no uh, proposal writing at all. It was all hard money. Yeah. And there aren't very many government laboratories that have university affiliations of one kind or another in which there isn't some grant writing required. Right. So that, but, it was a, um, but it was a different time, too. I mean, if you talk yeah, to people who were in right. other places who did write grants, it, it maybe wasn't as extreme yeah. ivory tower as GFDL right. was, but it was still right. like that compared to how it is now. It's just mm-hmm. a big change. It's hard yeah. to, almost hard to explain. Like, I mean, I wasn't mm. really there to see it in the old days, right, right. but even in my time, we've seen how much it's changed and it's hard to explain to young scientists, like to even imagine, you know, mm-hmm. what it was like. It was great like. for me because I got to uh, sort of create my own style of doing research. Yeah. Of course, I was influenced by people, especially Suki, but I was influenced by the students as well. And How would you describe that style? I'd say, first of all, this comes back to my statistical mechanics background is that I was interested in the climate system. I had no interest whatsoever in uh, numerical weather prediction or just prediction in general. Hmm. I would say abstractly, it's uh, I'm not never interested, in fact, actively avoided any problems in which you, you track the evolution of the system in detail, hmm. which is what weather prediction is. Yeah. And so I'm not as dogmatic anymore, but I that certainly influenced my career. I definitely mm. focused on the statistics of the atmosphere or the climate system, or just what we would call the climate problem, yeah. which I think is the problem in turbulence, effectively, in the atmosphere and the oceans. Turbulence of different kinds. And so that was one thing that marked me off from a number of other people in the field. I enjoyed, I was looking for the most fundamental questions I could. I've always try to do that. I'm rarely very successful, but I remember when I was reading uh, Mooning and Yaglam, these, mm-hmm. as an introduction to turbulence, this huge monograph, I was fascinated by the uh, Kolmogorov spectrum of turbulence. The, yeah. As a function of wave number, you have this beautiful derivation in quotes that you can derive the shape of this energy spectrum, the minus five-thirds spectrum, Kolmogorov spectrum, it's called, from simple dimensional arguments. Yeah. It seems trivial almost, but then you realize it's the essential thing is to determine what the relevant dimensional quantities are, which mm-hmm. you can then non-dimensionalize. And it all depends in Kolmogorov's case on realizing that the flow of energy through the system is the fundamental yeah. quantity. Yeah. It's not self-evident. In fact, it's a brilliant idea. 
Yeah. And then I started reading um, about turbulent boundary layer theories, and there you have the Moni Nobokov similarity theory, mm-hmm. which we still use in our. Yeah. And I was fascinated by that. That was still when I was at Stony Brook. And the simplest example of that is the logarithmic law of the wall that yeah. in a turbulent boundary layer, just from some, again, simplest conceivable dimensional ideas, you end up with the argument that the distribution of the horizontal wind flowing along a surface is uh, proportional to the logarithm of the distance away from the surface. You know, where does that come from? And and within that uh, theory, there's a, a number that emerges, a universal number, von Karman's constant, which yeah. seems to be about 0.4. If you look in uh, the computer code of a general circulation model nowadays, you'll probably find von Karman's constant in there. If you change that number, yeah. you'll change the climate. Yeah. But why is it 0. 0.4? So actually, I remember trying to um, find some literature on that. But without, and this sort of stuck with me, without trying to develop a theory for that number, the fact that that number sort of encapsulates a lot of our ignorance about the system, and then you can use that number, observations of that number, hmm. you can determine that experimentally, and then you can derive a lot of things just using that yeah. single observational fact. and. That kind of thing stuck with me and that I tried to do things like that. Of course, if you just go at the turbulence problem in kind of a brute force way, you don't get anywhere. No, it's just you have to uh, sneak up on it. You have to assume some things and take some things as observed and then derive what the consequences of that are. And sometimes you can base a theory on dimensional analysis once you decide what things are important without having a complete theory of the system, which we'll never have. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I love those turbulence uh, dimensional arguments too. I've taught the Kolmogorov mm-hmm. spectrum in many, many classes, mm-hmm. which are not about, you know, it's the one thing about turbulence. It's, it's right. easy to teach. I mean, not easy, but it doesn't require mm-hmm. a lot of advanced ideas. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's, it's both that those dimensional arguments, as simple as they appear, are so powerful but also that to do anything beyond that is like a huge amount more effort for often relatively little gain. So mm-hmm. it's like there's a large gap and that makes those dimensional arguments seem all the more compelling when you realize, mm-hmm. you know, like if you want to go 10% further, you have to, you know, triple the amount mm-hmm. of work. <laughs> yeah. There's some lesson there. I don't know yeah. exactly what it is. Well, one, one of the lessons is dimensional analysis is an amazing thing, but... Well, so the problem that I tried to focus on, which I come back to over and over again, and I still am working on effectively, is uh, the polar heat transport in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. What controls that? Why is the north-south temperature gradient what it is? Again, it comes down to dimensional analysis, I think. I don't can't say that I have anything remotely as convincing an argument as Kolmogorov did, for, or the logarithmic law of the wall, or anything like that. But it's a, a way to proceed. Still, you have to... I have to think about what controls the scale and the energy of the eddies that are transporting heat. And what and, was the state of that when you got mm-hmm. into it? I mean, because you started on that problem mm-hmm. right almost at the beginning, right? I mean, in your yeah, as a there student. were papers by um, uh, John Green, yeah. and I think it was 1970. Yeah, Peter Stone's paper, which I think that was 1980, and that was no, maybe that was that was earlier. I'm sorry, that was also I think I have my decades wrong. Green may have been the 1960s, and Stone was 1970, and so. They both had scaling arguments, dimensional arguments for the polar heat flux, which mm-hmm. uh, contradicted each other. And so that was one of the starting points, is how to relate those two. And uh, 
So then I also, about the time I started studying the subject, Peter Rines was writing about uh, his arguments about what how the inverse energy cascade stops on a yeah. rotating sphere and in two-dimensional turbulence. Listeners may or may not be familiar with this. It's very different from turbulence in three dimensions and that energy flows to larger scale rather than smaller scale. So we have to talk about where that energy cascade stops. Is it stopped by the size of the planet? Is it stopped some other way? And maybe we should say as long as we're here that because the atmosphere and ocean are so thin compared right. to the planet yeah, that we characterize we characterize the flow as being a yeah. kind of a two-dimensional turbulence like a, right. a, you know on on a sheet of paper and Yeah. So energy so flowing to larger scale. The reason scale why two-dimensional, that. yeah, the reason why two-dimensional turbulence is relevant is itself kind of subtle. I think it is. And so this question comes up as to what actually controls the scale of eddies in the atmosphere. And Peter Ryan had some very nice papers on this. And that was another starting point mm-hmm. for thinking about these dimensional arguments, for me anyway. Mm. But then I, you know, to test these ideas, the logical thing is to construct some simple turbulent models mm. of basically the mid-latitude atmosphere because it's the heat transport through mid-latitudes that mm. controls the north-south temperature gradient because that's where the temperature gradient is largest. Mm. So that got me in, interested in quasi-geostrophic theory, which is a beautiful theory developed in this classic period in meteorology in the late 1940s or 1950 mm. by Charney and uh, Edie and Phillips, Lorentz. And uh, that was that's always been a fascination. I, I just love that yeah. theory. It, it's an incredible simplification of the equations of motion yeah. of the atmosphere, and yet it's still very non-trivial. So I still enjoy working with quasi-geostrophic models, and that yeah. I think most of the field has moved away from that. So yeah. I feel because it's so easy now to work with more realistic models. Yeah, but of course you could have worked. You could have worked with the mm-hmm. realistic models of the time then. Yeah, you didn't have to go to quasi-geostrophic theory. No, That's- but. You know, I was making a transition from theoretical physics. So that would have been too big a jump initially. I see. And Despite Manabi's influence. Yeah, well, in fact, he encouraged me to think about idealized models. Okay. He didn't push me towards working with a comprehensive model. So it's a, a way to proceed. Still, you have to you have to think about what controls the scale and the energy of the eddies that are transporting heat. Yeah. yeah. Do- documenting these comprehensive models, and I'm not criticizing anyone at all, it's it's just very, very difficult to find a meaningful scientific documentation of yeah. these comprehensive models. So I've tried to build a bridge between those models and the simpler systems. Yeah. And that allows people to work with models that they, they know exactly what's in the model anyway, what the equations are. Yeah. And that seems to appeal to... Uh, Quite a few, especially younger scientists who are theoretically oriented. Yeah. This is all theory I'm talking about as a way of under, trying to understand the climate system. Yeah. So you work with a variety of models. And I think I managed to train some students to think along those lines, and then they've gone off to uh, encourage others to do the same thing and sort of yeah, have some effect I mean, on the field in that respect. I would say a rather large effect. Yeah, your, your students and their students have, and some of us like me who weren't your students, but kind of mm. halfway there have a, have an exceedingly large influence, at least in the United States, mm-hmm. maybe globally, in how people think about this. Yeah, it's nice in that I've sort of lost the ability to control that. That's taken on a life of its own, uh, which is exactly what I had hoped for. Yeah. I remember so, very clearly, again, going, going back briefly to uh, when I was in studying theoretical physics, one of the studying system mechanics in particular, I was really impressed by 
what's referred to as the icing model of yeah. phase transitions, of the magnetic phase transition. It's a very simple system, but you can, at least in some special cases, you can prove things exactly about the thermodynamics of the system. And more importantly, when you study the phase transition in that system, it turns out to have certain universal properties that do not be relevant or to a whole class of phase transitions in, in physics and material science. You manage to um, focus the intention of a large group of theoretical physics on a very uh, idealized, well-defined problem, and that resulted in important progress on a lot of other problems, and, and that impressed me. And so that uh, sort of consciously looking for models that had the same flavor. Right. Because it's kind of hard to hammer out details and, mm-hmm. and disagreements if, if everybody's right. doing a somewhat different problem. I try to discourage that, if but not 100% successful, that you construct your own more idiosyncratic model only if you have a very good reason to do so. Otherwise, why not work within the context of the model that others have looked at and so that your work accumulates efficiently? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've thought about this a lot over the years in, mm-hmm. in no small part because of your influence. But it, I think part of the reason it hasn't happened to quite the same degree since is that, I mean, I think, first of all, there's some ego involved. I mean, everybody would like to be the one that created the right. model that everybody uses. But also, mm-hmm. quasi-geostrophic theory remains kind of unique, you know, it's in its degree of success in being a lot of things mm-hmm. on a lot of problems. There's nothing that's right. quite come to that level of breadth of applicability right. and, and simplicity, and everybody can see it, yeah. you know, and doesn't have great ideas of how to improve it. Right. And, uh, you want to at least have sort of a killer app for a given model. Right? <laughs> right. There's something that that model really helps you understand right. that translates to the real world and to more comprehensive right. models. So in this time when you were still a graduate student at Princeton, I mean, was the global warming problem still at the forefront of your consciousness or was it just kind of a little bit of motivation yep. and now you're completely deep in the in the No, it was absolutely. Theory. That's where I started. That's why I said starting with that SMIC report. It was the global warming problem that got me interested in the climate problem mm-hmm. and the atmospheres and ocean. The climate problem got me interested in atmosphere and ocean, fluid dynamics. Yeah. Uh, so that was always the motivation. But I had to go, dig a little deeper into the fundamentals of atmosphere and ocean fluid dynamics before emerging again with some more confidence to talk about climate change. Yeah, I, I did research on climate from the beginning, but as far as climate change is concerned, I think that mostly came later. Yeah partly in collaboration with others. I guess it's a matter of confidence. Right. Well, yeah, I'm interested in this mm-hmm. tension, but but so let's mm-hmm. come back to that. But so your thesis was on—I mm-hmm. can't remember what the title was—but it was uh, on this the mid-latitude heat transport problem. And so yeah, yeah, I actually focused it on uh, the uh, maintenance of the static stability of the troposphere, right. which then through that affects everything because it affects what we call the radius of deformation, the the scale of which instabilities in the atmosphere generate energy, right. the eddy energy. And so that was a big mystery to me, what controlled the static stability of the mid-latitude atmosphere. So I focused the thesis on that. But the thesis and included... I have, I, I, am I right yeah. in having the sense that unlike some of the other things you talked about, I don't... Had anybody really worried about that before? Or was it... I, I'm not aware of... Maybe not... Anything uh, much earlier on that problem in particular. Right. I think it goes back to something... Uh, I was looking at these theories for the polar heat transport by Green and Stone, these dimensional yeah. arguments. And if you look at them, see, they differ completely in how they depend on the static stability of the atmosphere. In Stone's theory, counterintuitively, if you increase the static stability, you increase the polar heat transport. And in Green's theory, it's just the opposite. So that's it. Gee, I mean, can't we agree on that? And Of course, Manabi's papers on the static stability in the tropics Mm -hmm. were already out for a while, but but everybody recognized that those weren't relevant to the mid-latitudes? There may have been some discussion of that. I don't know. 
But I think it's pretty clear that, at least I thought it was clear, that these tropical arguments have a pretty distinct region of validity. And this relates to your own work on the weak temperature gradient. Yeah. You know, they work up to the subtropical jet or the region where you have a tropical tropopause. Yeah. And over that region, it's very much, you know, governed by distinctive tropical dynamics. And as soon as you get out of that, it's much less clear what. I mean, latent heat release is still important, but, you know, Barrett-Linnigetti's are transporting heat vertically as well as horizontally. Yeah. So the large scales are not just the convection. They're competing effectively. Yeah. And the convection is organized by the large scales. Yeah. I still think there are a lot of open questions there. Yeah. Okay, so when did you get your PhD? Yeah. Late 70s, I want to say? That was in 1976, I believe. Okay. And then I went off for a postdoc for a couple of years at Harvard. Yeah. I got married while I was in Princeton, and my wife was looking for something. She was studying air pollution, or she was interested yeah. in air pollution. And so was she, she in the got, same department with you? She was working at uh, GFDL yeah, okay. as an employee. She's actually working with Kirk Bryan as an oceanographer I see. or as a computer programmer, effectively. Uh -huh. and she wanted to do something more hands-on. Yeah. But she uh, got accepted to the Harvard School of Public Health, uh -huh. which is a nice place to study the kind of stuff she was interested in. So yeah. I managed to get a postdoc with uh, Dick Lindzen yeah. at Harvard. And he also gave me a lot of freedom. Yeah. I think Dick would have been a harder person for me to write papers with. But I ended up writing <laughs> papers with his student, Arthur Howe in particular, Yeah. eventually. I feel like we should talk about that paper you wrote with him in 1980 because that was the first piece of your work that I was ever exposed to. And I think that's still true for many of our students. I mean, mm -hmm. it, when I took tropical meteorology from Alan Plum in the early 90s, that paper was the first thing he started with on day one, basically directly teaching that paper more or mm -hmm. less. And it's still, you know, everybody still reads it. So it's, mm -hmm. but it's, but the subject is a little different. I mean, well, it's I, not turbulence, it's still climate. Right. But uh, the realization there, which, not really mine, that in the tropics especially, you can say a lot without, you know, in terms of a steady state theory, without yeah. worrying about the details of the uh, turbulence. About the, over, right. the zonal mean overturning of the right. tropical atmosphere, how the air rises at the equator mm -hmm. and sinks in the subtropics. And I guess, but somehow you must have, this must have been connected to Lindzen's work oh, on this, much. which was it's, around that time. Yeah. Yeah. And Ed Schneider, especially. Yeah, Schneider and Lindzen. Uh, yeah. Ed, he was a student of Dick's. Yeah, right. And I think I was right next door. My office was right next door to Ed Schneider's. And it's one of those, this theory is sometimes called the uh, held how theory of the Hadley cell. Yeah. But most of the ideas are in Ed Schneider. Ed had a paper with Dick, which was a linear theory of the Hadley cell, which is yeah. very different. I don't think it's that relevant, or at least it's different, let's say. But then Ed had a paper on his own on a nonlinear model of the Hadley cell, which had the basic idea there. Right. It differs in detail from what we did, and those details can be important. I mean, from the mm -hmm. historical perspective mm -hmm. of those of us coming up after, I mean, it, what your mm -hmm. paper did was, yeah, the ideas were there before, but you came up with a very uh, elegant analytical mm -hmm. um, derivation <laughs> pencil and right. paper. And that makes it much easier to teach it. Right. It makes it easier to, to do a lot of things. You don't have to, you know, lean on the numerical right. results. So I think that's why you end up getting the credit for it that you do with, you know, which we could debate know. about, you know, who gets that, credit for what is an interesting right. problem. But yeah. I think that's At times I tried to call it the Schneider held how theory yeah. of the Hadley cell. Yeah. It just never caught on. <laughs> and I feel a little guilty about it. But in fact, I went back you know, a number of years ago when I was feeling a little guilty about it. I went back to our paper and I think our references to Ed Schneider's papers were fair. And uh, Oh yeah, they're there. Yeah, uh, There was nothing uh, 
we didn't hide that connection at all. So I'm, I'm happy no. about that. But for some reason, that doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. And I think that the uh, pencil and paper kind of argument you're talking about still, I think you can ext- you still can extract it from Ed's paper, just not cleaned up in quite the same way. Yeah, it's... It looks more complicated because he's retaining a lot of spherical geometry and this and that. And the emphasis of the paper as a whole is a little different. But the scaling arguments for like the width of the Hadley cell in our, the two papers are different because the underlying models we're talking about are actually different if you look at it in detail. But I still think that would be an appropriate way of describing it. I don't know if you're familiar with ZIP. I think it's ZIPF's law, Z-I-P-F. No. He's a statistician, was a statistician. and He had this law that when someone gets their name on a result like that, mm-hmm. it's invariably true that they're not the ones who invented it or responsible for that. Right. And that, that applies to ZIPF's law as well, <laughs> which I, thought, I always thought that was funny. Well, it's often just the case that some, somebody comes up with a way of putting that for whatever reason resonates with people right. and that's what sticks. And most people are not going to be fastidious enough to try to be historically precise in attributing yeah, these things. No, to if, if you try to be precise, then you know the, the antecedents of any paper sort of get more you know vaguer as you go further back in time. And it's just hard to yeah. draw a line and say this is where this idea originated. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of themes here that we could talk more about, but I want to make sure we get through at least the basic bullet points Mm -hmm. of your trajectory. So you were at MIT for a couple of years and then you went back to Princeton, right? Pretty much right right after that. Yeah. I spent a couple summers at NCAR, which are nice. Got to know people there. Because Dick was very generous. He just supported my summers at NCAR. Yeah. While yeah. I was at Harvard, and you but never then, wrote a paper yeah. with him. I mean, as you said, you never wrote a paper with him. That didn't bother him. Didn't bother you. It was just no. yeah, yeah. It was a different time. You know, Arthur was his student. We didn't write that paper until I had left Harvard. For hmm. I didn't come out until a couple of years after. Hmm. Uh, so Arthur and I worked on it quite a bit after um, I left Harvard. You know, I had traveled to different to NCAR. I've been a few places in modeling centers in Europe, I realized I wanted to be connected to a modeling center one way or the other because I wanted to have this ability to work with, to play with models and potentially computationally. They don't have to be Baroque models with a lot of bells and whistles, but they still can be computationally intensive. Mm. I want to have the ability to play with them when I'm writing a lot of proposals. And uh, just looking around, I thought, I don't think I can do better than just going back to Princeton Mm. and... At that time, actually, as I remember it, the government salaries were actually better than university salaries. That's mm. flipped over completely, yeah. uh, quite dramatically. In fact, there's no sacrifice in going, getting a federal position in Princeton. The laboratory had a well-deserved reputation of giving you a lot of freedom. Yeah. And Joe, the director, he invited me back mm. to come back if I wanted to. And, and so uh, that worked out well. I could teach in the program, have graduate students and postdocs through the university. Yeah. And so that was ideal for me. And also my wife was very comfortable, you know, starting a family here. Yeah. She had a lot of friends and so that. And we just stayed because we were uh, just comfortable. I guess I'm a sort of a glass half full kind of person. I'm kind of not looking for, (laughs) you know, things can go wrong when you try different things. I mean, I've gotten invitations to go different places, but never really come close to leaving Mm. Princeton. I'm retired now. Yeah. I still have this affiliation with Princeton, which allows me to do some things, but yeah. which is nice. But yeah, so that was an excellent decision, again, to 
it was just suited for my research style to have this that position in Princeton and a lot and, of great people to talk to. Yeah, and you've had some remarkable students. I know. So in the early days, I mean, David mm-hmm. Nealon's the first one that comes to my mind, but I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of who the first other first ones were. I think there's some others that I. Um, I think the I'm first gonna... were Prashant Sardishmuk and. Uh, oh yeah, sure. Sumat Sumat Nigam, I think, was the second, and then okay. came David. I have a list here somewhere, but. Uh, yeah, it's an astonishing. Yeah, list. then I had. I think, you know, like the Princeton name helps there, frankly. They, a lot of people that come into our field don't really have a idea of what the landscape is, of yeah. you know, where the good well, people in research are. I think especially then. I mean, maybe now it's it's easier to do research on the web nowadays and get a feel for yeah. things. Um, but at least I think Princeton cachet helps attract the students and then huge well we can give you um, a little bit is, of credit for the for the, yeah, that, I think for the eventual designing, trajectories of these people yeah you want to you know there's a pretty constant theme of trying to get them to work at different levels of models of different levels of complexity i think they're mm-hmm. theoretically oriented otherwise they wouldn't come work with me but, but also you have to and i'm sure you think about this a lot trying to design a project that is suited to a particular student yeah that is well, doable there has to be some low-hanging fruit there, but it still has to be challenging, especially for the better students. And that's uh, hard. Sometimes it works better than others. Yeah, it's hard. And now, mm-hmm. I mean, and to be in a normal university now, I don't know how it is at, mm-hmm. at Princeton these days, but mm-hmm. the funding stress is much greater. And right. To some degree, you know, if it's NSF or something, mm-hmm. you can still exercise the kind of, you know, yeah. flex the kind of muscle that you did in that in designing yeah. those. But it's not. Well, for the first half of my period in, at GFDL as a government employee and teaching, lecturing in Princeton, the, we had an NSF umbrella grant that just, we didn't have to get graduate student support within a particular project in which we describe what the graduate student is going to do. Right, right. We just had an umbrella grant yeah, for the whole program. And right. our argument was that we were educating students in a unique way within this climate uh, modeling laboratory. And they bought that for a while. And then at a certain point, they said, no, we can't do that anymore. People are objecting. That is unfair to others to fund change things. So then we we adapted, however. So then we could still bundle some proposals together, but you had to tell them what the graduate students were going to be working on. Yeah. And so that became more, more typical environment, graduate students in that way. And that so anyway, can we talk about the like mm-hmm. the evolution of your interests over this time? I mean the the mm-hmm. the, the baroclinic eddies and the polar heat flux has remained yeah. throughout, but right. then you started doing a lot of other things, or maybe some of them had roots yeah. early. I mean, but yeah, I started doing this work on uh, models of radiative convective equilibrium yeah. in the tropics yeah. with resolved convection. There's a logical outgrowth of Suki's original yeah. classic work and right. which everyone in our field is familiar with. Right. So that was the motivation. We said, okay, we want to do that without assuming that the relative humidity is specified yeah. or that the clouds are fixed. Or we yeah. just want to do a full... See, what would the Earth's albedo be if the, uh, let's say in the case where it's non-rotating and the surface temperature is horizontally homogeneous right. and the solar radiation is horizontally homogeneous and everything is doubly periodic, as we say, so that there are no walls in the system. You just turn on the sun, you start convecting, the model forms its own clouds, it interacts with its own rate of transfer. And that question occurred to me very early on, I think probably when I was a graduate student. There was a someone on the GFDL staff 
Oh, you probably don't know Frank Lips. No, he was a cloud modeler. I guess I've seen the name mm-hmm. in that paper of yours now that I think, but I yeah, yeah I didn't know him. And he uh, he died of cancer at uh, middle age, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But when Joe was putting the laboratory together, Joe Smogrinsky, he hired a relatively small number of individuals and basically assigned them areas. And Suki's area was climate and climate change, and Kirk Bryan's was oceanography, mm-hmm. ocean. This is all modeling yeah. work, and Kurihara was supposed to model hurricanes right from the start, and mm-hmm. and there were others that didn't work out so well. Like Gareth Williams was supposed to work on modeling laboratory annulus experiments, rotating laboratory experiments, and those never really took off. And so Gareth made the transition to studying planetary atmospheres instead. But anyway, Frank Lips was given the job of modeling uh, clouds, and uh, Chuck Leith was at the lab for a while mm. in the early stages, although he left before I came. Anyway, Frank was the cloud modeler. So I started talking to Frank, and we talked quite a bit about so what would it take to do this calculation and just let the model go? Because in those days, people were just modeling individual clouds for an hour or two yeah. at pretty high resolution. But you know, computers were improving, and, and we were I think we talked about this for a decade. And we eventually got to Ramaswamy involved because we wanted to do it with realistic radio transfer. And uh, no one had been doing that, coupling these mm-hmm. cloud models to full radio transfer. Mm-hmm. And so we put a model together like that, and then uh, Frank developed cancer and uh, passed away pretty quickly and worked with one of his uh, programmers to finish that project, but we lost a lot of momentum. But that had a long gestation period. And I uh, really thought that was going to be truly a breakthrough and that we could talk about how the clouds and the albedo of the earth were controlled in this simple, this would be a model which would be relevant and sort of ideal for studying these basic climate sensitivity questions. Right. It's a a very interesting dynamical system and it's become a subfield of its own, some beautiful work. Well, I was going to say, just a history mm-hmm. of it, I mean, for those who don't know mm-hmm. it, is that you wrote that paper in the early 90s, is my mm-hmm. 93, I want to say. Something like that. Yeah. And then there were a few other people who started doing it around that time. Carrie Emanuel yeah. was doing some stuff like that around that time, and there may have been others. Right. And then blew up about 10, 12 years later, all of a sudden, right. after mm-hmm. I think Chris Bretherton's first self-aggregation paper, yeah. which is a direct descendant. I mean, it's the same right. kind of problem, so but much, much bigger, more powerful this. computer. Right. And uh, and and yeah. then now there's dozens and dozens of you know people, especially young yeah. people, working on this. Yeah, exact intercomparison same projects. Of, uh, yeah, when you're becoming an intercomparison project, then your model has be- sort of hit the mainstream, I guess. <laughs> but we realized pretty quickly that we had this problem as we sort of self-aggregation. The turbulence that you generated in this convective system did not remain homogeneous, but became very clumpy. And it wasn't clear what the scale of those clumps were. So everything depended on the size of the domain yeah, and on resolution and all sorts of things. And and that's persisted to some extent. I think some of the David Romps at Berkeley has done some of the best work. Hmm. But by working with very small domains, so he doesn't have to worry so much about self-aggregation. Yeah, but the so self-aggregation problem has caught has right. become an object yeah. of a huge interest. A, right, but it prevents you from making anything, saying anything definitive about okay, how does the albedo change when you change right. the solar constant? You just right. it's hard to get these models to converge. Yeah. Um, 
And so that was much more challenging. I think it's telling us something about the real world in that, and about the problem of convective parameterization, that you don't really have scale separation of the kind that you'd like to have when you're trying to construct clean parameterizations of vertical transport of heat and moisture by convection. And it's really a test of that scale separation. Can I construct a theoretical model which I, in which there are no other length scales operating? Yeah. It turns out to be very hard to converge to something which tells you that it's not easy to parameterize. Well, so, I mean, we're trying to capture the arc of, mm-hmm. of you know, so I'm, I know we're making short trip to things, but so that was mm-hmm. one thing. You started doing work on moist convection and that grew in a lot of different directions over time. Mm-hmm. And there was the hurricane work. The as hurricane well. problem started happening, I don't know, 10 years later or something. Yeah. And that became a big... Yeah, that, uh, yeah I focused on that quite a bit with people at GFDL. It's yeah. not something I was doing. I was evolving away from being totally hands-on at that point. Right. Which is another turning point in my career, which I can come back to. But I was working with a lot of collaborators and some really, really bright people. But the niche we had was to try to address, again, with fairly idealized setups, the question of the statistics of hurricane genesis, hurricane statistics. The group that you were leading was kind of maybe doing the most in terms of systematically trying to explore the parameter spaces and models and trying to understand things in a fundamental way. But there was a lot of people... There was a sudden boom in simulation yeah. of hurricane because of those no, factors. I think it's correct. You can't. You couldn't ignore the problem. You're working at that resolution. You, I mean, the hurricanes are a big part of this. The solution in the tropics, and when you looked at the statistics, if, if your model was reasonably good, and by that I mean the mean climate, yeah. the mean distribution of precipitation was reasonably good, yeah. you got a pretty good simulation of the distribution yeah. of tropical cyclogenesis. And there's, I think, there's still work to be done there to understand why exactly that is. But to me, it means that you don't have to simulate the eye-wall dynamics and the intensity to talk about genesis. And that goes against the grain still among some people. How could the models do as well as they do? Well, and now you see you have NWP models at that resolution that are forecasting Mm. genesis pretty well operationally, you know, to the point that the hurricane center is using it. I mean, they're making forecasts of genesis days out. That was unthinkable, you know, a couple decades ago. So, And from the model development standpoint, it becomes another critical, especially for NOAA, you know, a critical metric. Is it a good climate model should have, you know, the best possible simulation of the climatology of tropical cyclogenesis. And so you want to push that. It becomes a a focus for a large part of the laboratory. So, okay, so this is a good, so while we're on that, Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. I mean, you talked earlier about models, different levels of complexity and how in your Mm -hmm. early work, you know, you were not Mm -hmm. directly working with the most comprehensive models. Mm -hmm. But over this time period that we've been sort of describing your arc in a scattershot way, my perception of of it is that two things happen one at the in in your own work you became more directly engaged with the comprehensive models i mean maybe you always were to some degree mm-hmm. but i mean more actively part of the development process using them more in your paper you know writing more papers about them yeah. i had a leadership role in a couple of right right model development teams at the laboratory right i was just and, trying to you know, do my part in yeah a way and, and the hurricane work was sort of just a natural yeah. focus that really helped from a lot of different directions. But, but, but I mean, but you talked mm-hmm. about, I mean, so you just said you did it out of a sense of wanting to do your part and obligation. And early, mm-hmm. But earlier you talked about how you didn't like it when there was something in the model you didn't understand. But at some point... It's a 
you accepted that, right? I mean, you, I mean, you probably understand what's in the model as well as just about anyone there is, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. it can't be everything. And so I'm just interested in the evolution in your thinking about this. Well, it's a compromise, but I, I still feel that, and I still think that there's promise along these lines, mostly from the younger generation, that we can make, as I like, we can make our um, comprehensive climate models more uh, elegant. Hmm. I think to do that, you really have to start from scratch. Hmm. The kind of work that Tapio and others are doing, and machine yeah. learning helps because then you can make it clear what data you're using as input, hmm. and that what assumptions you're making about what your model structure is, and then hmm. how you've come up with the specific model out of those two things. Whereas hmm. historically, that's been vague. It's very hard to you have all these model development meetings, and you different people have different uh, motivations, and they have different internal metrics of what they consider a good model to be. Yeah. And usually you don't make that objective. How do you weigh person A's desire to have a really nice El Nino simulation with person B's insistence that your model's climate sensitivity cannot be above? So and so. Otherwise, it's you'll never get the historical record to look good over the 20th century. And so we, you know, we would never combine these into some kind of objective metric that you could then turn the crank. And but uh, I think people are moving in the direction where we can finally document these models and systematically and exactly how they're constructed. But we're not there yet, and, and so it was a compromise uh, on my part. Uh, but as far as how it connects to the sort of hierarchy building, I'm trying to focus on this a little bit now, but. I think the huge gap we have is, I started calling it type one and type two idealizations, where type one is starting from very simple system and adding layers of complexity mm-hmm. one at a time and seeing what changes. And, and the other is starting with a comprehensive model and simplifying it. Yeah. You know, it's the easiest thing to simplify the boundary conditions. But yeah. you can do, you can remove cloud radio feedback. People do all this sorts of stuff. Right. But that gap is very hard to uh, close, mostly because of convection and clouds. Yeah. Those are, and there's some other things that are issues as well, but those are the most fundamental. And, and so I've started to think about how to close that, but I have to do it by working through others primarily. But I think we have to move away from, we have to develop new classes of convective parameterizations that are much simpler. Mm. And you might not even think of them as parameterizations. Maybe they're smoothing algorithms. Or I've been interested, although it hasn't worked out very well in this thing that some of us called the hypohydrostatic modeling, which Chris Bretherton and others had different terminology and uh, Jiming Quang, right. a small earth. Right. These somehow uh, reduce the, the gap. The why it's so difficult computationally is that there's such a scale separation between the convection, one kilometer or so, maybe less for some problems. And then you have uh, the large scale and the planetary scale right. climate. It's just hard to span. And if you can just somehow, either by different ways of modifying your equations to effectively reduce that size of that gap. Right. So the clouds are really small. The planet is really big. So to do both well. At the same time as hard. And, so, so you make the planet smaller I, and spin it faster, if I remember correctly. And then there's a yeah, way of rescaling everything so that you, you can make the clouds bigger right. relative to the scale of the planet and still get mm-hmm. a useful answer. Yeah. Or what's almost equivalent is you have a non-hydrostatic global model, one that's capable of stimulating convection. If you have enough resolution, then you can just modify the vertical acceleration of vertical momentum. Right, right. 
by a parameter to make the model less hydrostatic. It's mm. what we call it hypohydrostatic, which is effectively the same thing as yeah, yeah. what you just described. But that's just an example of the kind of thing you might do that's maybe a little non-traditional, but I'm a little frustrated with usual convection schemes, which we can't seem to design idealized frameworks to test in some theoretical way. We just have to test them by seeing what they do inside models for the most part. And that's often surprising what they do. The tropical cyclone problem helps in that regard because it's kind of surprising what the convective parameterizations can do to your tropical cyclone simulation. You're often better off just getting rid of your parameterization or at least construct it in such a way that it doesn't affect the genesis. I think the convection, you typically need the convection to maintain the mean tropical, a very large-scale tropical temperature profile. Your, Your parameterization doesn't know anything about helping you create a tropical cyclone. You just want the fluid dynamics to do that for you. And I think we know from what we were discussing earlier that genesis is basically driven from larger scales by some kind of cascade. Otherwise, there's no way our global climate models could do as well as they do. How do they know where to form tropical cyclones? And so I think the tropical cyclone problem helps us and some people started calling this the Hippocratic Oath for parameterizations. You don't want your convection scheme to do harm. <laughs> you want it to help you as much as possible and while avoiding harm. And a lot of the schemes do uh, harm some aspects of the simulation. So I think there's some things we can do in trying to close that gap between what I call type 1 and type 2 idealized models and create a more seamless hierarchy, but we're not there yet. And we need some new ideas yeah. on how to do that. I mean, I tried to connect a little, like on the hurricane problem, when you do raging convective equilibrium, horizontally homogeneous, but in a rotating system, your domain fills up with tropical cyclones. Yeah. And your genesis basically goes to zero because these storms right. have effectively infinite lifetime. Right. So it's not a good system for studying genesis. Right. But if hurricanes didn't hit land or go to cold water in the real world, right. they would last forever. Yeah. And it's, um, it's also, I think, saying that to understand the statistics of genesis, it's a question of inhibiting genesis. Yep. And what inhibits genesis ultimately, one way or the other, is horizontal inhomogeneity, yep. which creates shear, large-scale shear, creates a differential, you know, creates a distribution of convection and precipitation. Everything relates to the inhomogeneity. Yeah. And so there's potential for connecting to more idealized models there, but we have to do better than rotating rate to connective equilibrium to make models that are relevant for genesis. And yeah. Anyway, so I have moved away a little bit, you know, working more with comprehensive models, but I can't say that I was ever satisfied or I've always been frustrated. Working with these model development teams, it's hard and it's fascinating and you feel like you're accomplishing something sometimes, but interesting problems arise. You see a sensitivity you don't understand you could go off for a couple of years and study that, yeah. but you can't do that when you're in the developing a model with a bunch of other people. And so you, right. you these problems arise that you can't address, and so you end up not understanding things. While I still have you, I, I want to get back a little bit to the global warming problem and mm-hmm. your perception over of it over time, because you said you were motivated by it from the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. out of some feeling of doing something relevant. And then you said you had to go back and do basic climate dynamics for a while before saying anything more about global warming. And I'm going to ask a direct Mm -hmm. question, but I want to tell a story first that you're in. You know, my perception has changed over time in my career, which is not as long as yours. And I think that's true of a lot of us, but I'm really interested in your 
how you think about the human problem and how it connects to the scientific work. And the story I want to tell mm -hmm. is this. It was about 1997. So I had just finished my PhD. I was in mm -hmm. the process of moving to Seattle and there was a conference in Tacoma, Washington. And we had dinner. Yeah. It was you and I and Paul AMS Christian, conference. AMS conference, American Meteorological yeah. Society conference right. on uh, atmosphere, ocean fluid dynamics. I or maybe it was still meeting, called. But I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember this dinner. Yeah, okay. Well, I will go tell ahead, you this. Go ahead. So we had dinner. It was you and me and Paul Kushner, who was a postdoc with you at the time. It was my, you know, yeah. we, Paul and I had become mm -hmm. friends already. We're about the same generation. Mm -hmm. And uh, and my wife, Marit, we had, uh, I think we had just got married or we were about to get married. Anyway, mm -hmm. so we had dinner at some restaurant, four of us is of my recollection. I don't think there was anybody there. If there was, I don't remember. And you were very uh, nice and solicitous to Marit. You asked her a lot of questions about her, you know, life and what she was doing. Mm -hmm. She's kind of an environmental scientist too, although a more applied right. one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she started asking you about climate change because she was very, you know, interested in that. In fact, I got into this mm -hmm. field because of her interest in climate change. I mean, she cared about it earlier okay. and more mm -hmm. than, than I did. Mm -hmm. And so she, you know, she took the opportunity to ask you what you thought about it. I, and, you know, at this time, as a, a bit of a preface, I mean, there were some scientists who spoke a lot in the media about, you know, the urgency of the climate problem. There had been mm -hmm. for years. You weren't really one of them. And I think right. in a way, that's probably why Paul and I were kind of drawn to you, because even though we might have agreed with what lots of people were saying publicly about it, that sort of is not mm -hmm. our style. We liked the science like you did. And so you were this great, you know, thinker that we, you know, appreciated. But so you, you so you said mm -hmm. tomorrow something like, well, I'm really concerned about it. And I think we've already seen a half a degree of warming and, you know, there's going to be more. And neither Paul nor I had ever heard you make that kind of an explicit attribution statement. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of stunned. I mean, not that we were really surprised by the content, but it was like mm -hmm. a more frank, you know, it hadn't come up mm -hmm. somehow. And we would just wanted to ask right. you about quasi-geostrophic theory and all that. And we, we never asked yeah. you that question, you know, that Marit did. Mm -hmm. And so I was walking home afterwards with Paul and Paul said something like, oh, don't, don't tell the, any the media, you know, uh, this will be a big deal. Isaac says, you know, we're all in trouble. And, and somehow, uh, you know, it mm -hmm. sounds funny in retrospect, but I guess the mm -hmm. reason I tell this story is it's my perception mm -hmm. that that many of us were motivated by the climate problem as a human problem to some degree, or, or my own experience was just to do the scientific work. But then there's been an evolution over time where mm -hmm. the reality and the urgency of the problem has become more, more compelling and harder to avoid such that even though we would have had believed intellectually that it was a serious problem a long time ago, but it didn't have the kind of salience, you know, it was, it's easy to be clinical about it and it's become much harder for me anyway. And I'm just curious about this trajectory in your, mm -hmm. you know, in your perception, if, if you have experienced anything like this or, or not, mm -hmm. or what you think about it. Well, I've always felt, and I think it's true that I'm, I can contribute most by doing the kind of research on the climate system that I've done over my career. And yeah. I seem to be able to do things that people find useful. Some of them are uh, relevant at least as a background, but maybe uh, more than that in some cases that are relevant for discussions of climate change and our confidence in models. And I don't feel that I'm a good communicator. This goes back to when I was growing up and I was just mm. the smallest kid in class and I was just shy and introverted and very studious. Yeah. And uh, that's just who I am. I don't think I can change my personality at this point. Right, right. I don't think I'm very good at speaking extemporaneously. I've, I've been in a few debates over the years, and uniformly, I'm very dissatisfied. Yeah. And this, you know, a couple of them were set up Princeton. A couple of them were pretty funny. In fact, one I remember had, uh, what's his name, Singer? Fred Singer. He had, he's passed away now. This is some time ago. It was organized by some uh, student there were two of us on each side of the debate. Anyway, I can't remember who the others were. But 
Anyway, uh, it was set up by some student organization. It was in a pretty big room on the main campus at Princeton. I thought it was funny. Before the uh, debate starts, I'm introduced to someone in the first row, and it turns out to be Phyllis Schlafly, <laughs> who's the <laughs> famous uh, anti-feminist, uh, whatever you want to call her. So I said, what is she doing at this debate? Well, she was with her with an entourage, and the student committee that set this up was a pretty extreme conservative group, right, right. which I failed to do any research on. Right. And so and then when Singer starts, I said the usual kind of IPCC stuff as an introduction, and Singer goes immediately to some paper he discovered that correlated some cosmogenic isotopes, which reflect solar right, activity right, right. with some upwelling index in the Gulf of Aden or something. And yeah. Of course, I'd never heard of this paper. Yeah. And he says it's you know it's proof that climate change has nothing to do with CO2. Yeah. Climate always varies. And I didn't know how to respond to that. I could, right, right. You know, give me some time to study this paper. I could say something or write something for someone. But that debate was pretty much a disaster. And yeah. I felt well, bad about it because there were these people in the naive the students who had organized it. Uh, it was kind of a setup, I think. Oh, yeah. But uh, I didn't uh, appreciate that. And I did very poorly. And I've done one or two more over the years, and I'm never happy with how they turn out. And I you know I get uh, media questions from the media about what I thought about this or that, and I would often be uh, quoted out of context. They're always I can't seem to uh, produce nice uh, pithy statements, which have to be right. you know published more or less as you say well, them well, rather I, than. I, and I think that takes experience, and you've obviously developed. Well, real talent for that. Well, I'm you're very kind. I'm not. I have no talent for debates. Most <laughs> debates. I mean, let me rephrase the question though, because well, I you have a media presence. I have a media presence. But then, just to finish my yeah. line of thought, that was part of my motivation for developing this blog. Where the blog yeah, yeah. goes back and forth between more scientific, yeah. not climate change things and climate change topics, written kind of a graduate student level, and uh, eventually had terminated for a variety of reasons. But I'm going to pick it up again. And that was my reaction to, if I don't like the way I'm quoted in the media when I'm asked a question, let me express myself through this blog and then people can just pick up. Of course, that doesn't actually work. They just take things out of context from the blog (laughs) post too. But that was my reaction. uh, Also, that gives me, as I indicated earlier, gives me a chance to refine the way I say things. But I want to rephrase the question because I didn't mm -hmm. mean it as really a critique of your Mm -hmm. public presence or lack of it. But I kind of want your opinion about the broader picture, too. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is coming up now, the same calculations apply. I mean, one has to contribute how one is best positioned to contribute. Yeah. But I guess the suggestion I would offer, or maybe I'd better say is the thing I'm struggling with myself is that mm-hmm. if we're telling the world, we meaning somebody, you know, some group of people is trying to make the political case, then if we talk too much about the uncertainties, we're kind of shooting ourselves mm-hmm. in the foot as a political argument. And also maybe, you know, as a human problem, even though there's lots of contributions to make scientifically, maybe the need there is a little bit less than it was 30, 40 years ago. And so, you know, as I've been struggling with this and I've started talking about it a little bit publicly, and I have the sense that it really resonates with the students now because a lot of them are coming in, you know, their desire to do something is more concrete and stronger than mm-hmm. most of my generation right. or yours was. Mm-hmm. And so these questions is much more acute 
of how the mm-hmm. you know the typical young scientist or maybe even not so young scientist can make a contribution. Mm-hmm. That person may not be Isaac Held either with your scientific mm-hmm. capability or your reticence. I mean, the debates are a scam. Mm-hmm. You know, let's I'll leave those aside. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows that's <laughs> not. Right. We don't want to grade mm-hmm. anybody on their skills at those debates because they're not the mm-hmm. right way to decide scientific questions. But mm-hmm. do you have a you know has this yeah. evolution in a- the sort of public visibility yeah. of the problem affected how you think about these things? Not just in terms of your own mm-hmm. career, but how you see everybody else right. around you and the institutions and the and so on. I can make a couple of points. I'm not sure this is answering your question directly, but I've always been uncomfortable with, if we're talking about, say, trying to affect policy, I'm uncomfortable, and I don't know if I'm totally consistent on this, but I'm so uncomfortable with individual scientists interacting with politicians and to influence those politicians because it's... uh, who controls which scientists these politicians talk to? They could talk to Fred Singer or to Dick Lindzen or whoever. So I personally like the assessment process, the IPCC in particular. Right. That it's not perfect, but it's like democracy. It's the best thing we have. You know, I don't think there's anything better to provide this buffer between the um, potentially idiosyncratic uh, views of some scientists and having them have too great an influence on the political process. And the IPCC and that kind of assessment always struck me as an ideal way of influencing policy by participating in that. And if you can't get your ideas expressed in those documents, then, well, you have to try harder and influence that process because uh, I'm just uncomfortable with whether it's Michael Mann or Dick Lindzen how do I know uh, who has whose ear? You know, if, if you have their ear, that's great. But if it's either Dick or, or you know, someone on the other end of the spectrum, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Right. Um, so but that's, I mean, so I've, right, I've but... tried to participate in IPCC. I'm not defending my own career again, but I, th- I just think I advise other young scientists to get involved in assessment activities as well and try to come up with consensus statements that at least the way the IPCC is structured, the governments have at least formally bought into the process. And so they're obliged to take it seriously in a sense. So I mean, it doesn't I, have I to be scientists who do that. it, but mm-hmm. right. But I mean, the, at a broad level, the conclusions of the IPCC haven't really changed in a long time. The way they're expressed has changed. And you know, some people think right. that the 1.5 degree report, I think there's an argument to maybe mm-hmm. that had a significantly stronger effect on yeah. at least US, maybe global politics than mm-hmm. other reports had because the way it was expressed. But I'm not just thinking about how scientists mm-hmm. conduct their careers, but also, mm-hmm. you know, the choices people make of how to, of what career mm-hmm. to have. And, and just generally, mm-hmm. you know, the question of, you know, what's the role of, I mean, obviously scientific research as it's yeah. done, <laughs> sure, we can express it through the IPCC, mm-hmm. but the thing I'm struggling with to make it just more explicit mm-hmm. is that I think when it comes to mitigation, uh, mm-hmm. I wrote a little essay about this recently. So I, you know, I've sort mm-hmm. of tried to formulate it in my mind mm-hmm. when it comes to mitigation, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, there's a lot more we could know in a sort of ideal world about the best way to do that. But we're so far from that ideal world that scientific refinements are not immediately politically relevant. I, I don't know. This is, some, this is my midlife crisis. Put, okay, so let me push back a little bit. Okay, please. For example, something that I think was a major advance. I don't know exactly what had happened. Certainly in the last 10 years, maybe a little earlier. Is this accumulated emissions perspective? Oh yeah, very climate good. Change. Yeah, and, uh, and that is something I wasn't certainly I wasn't thinking in those terms. Mm. 
before this became popular. And then you have this sort of... Well, maybe you should say what it called? is, uh, just so that maybe not everybody it's knows. that instead of thinking about the response to a certain amount of CO2, you think about the response of the climate system as a whole, including the carbon cycle, to a given emission. Right. So in other words, when you say not in, yeah. not doing it in terms of the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere mm-hmm. at any given moment, but how much is being put in right. to the system as a whole right. as a function. Yeah. And how much has been put in in the past. And when you do that, it turns out, I think for pretty interesting reasons, that a very simple picture emerges that when you emit a certain amount of CO2, you get a certain temperature change. And that temperature change persists for hundreds of years, maybe a millennium. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because we used to think in terms of a, a committed warming that, and my intuition was always what we've done is going to have consequence. We're going to warm more in the future because of what we've done in the past. Yeah, That's not true. Right. According to this new perspective, it's what you see now is, is a consequence of the emissions that up to the present. Yeah. And uh, future warming is due to emissions in the future. Yeah. So we have control over warming in the future. I look at have more policy relevance in this new perspective. And there's still important science to be done. How robust is this perspective? Uh, it requires work on the carbon cycle coupled to climate. But So it's not something I've worked on. But I see it as a, as rather optimistic in that it's not, there's, at least if you talk about temperature, sea level is different. But if you talk about temperature, there's no inertia to speak of in the climate system. The inertia is in uh, society, in our economy and well, exactly. in energy infrastructure. Right. But that's not, I'm not sure that's really sunk in. We're, we have complete control over how much we warm. Well, who's Although we? We're committed to the, the world, I say. Yeah, but, right. But uh, I mean. How much we emit. The other part of this is, what's it called? Do we have a certain amount of CO2 that we can emit to be sure that we don't warm more than one and a half or two degrees? That's a concept that's relatively new right. as well. Right. Uh, so no, I, I mean, that's I, an advance so, that affect policy. Right. So let me refine my question again. Yeah. I mean, but let me give you another example okay, first. Go ahead, I, please. And this may be more closer to your work. And the, so there's all this emphasis on uh, global warming affecting extremes of various kinds. Yeah. And this seems to be the way to generate interest or concern about the problem, at least in the United States and yeah. maybe Europe as well. It's, and I'm uncomfortable with a lot of that yeah. because I don't think this. A lot of that science is not that sound. Right. I'm not an expert in a lot of it, but right. an example which I've looked at a little bit is this discussion about whether retreat of the Arctic sea ice is affecting weather in mid latitudes. Yep. In the win- winter, especially. Yeah. Uh, my, I'm still very skeptical of that. Yeah. Me too. People, including uh, at the highest levels of the government, have bought into this idea. Media really likes it. Yeah, and because it's something we obviously can relate to, the person on the street can relate to it. And tropical cycling is more complicated, but there's some of, I think there are some extreme positions that the nuances in that problem are not appreciated. And it's not as clear cut as people think. And so there's, what's the role of research on those problems? I'm pretty fuzzy on a lot of these questions about extremes. I'm yeah. also very un. Let's say unexcited about rapid uh, response. What's it called? Attribution. Uh, attribution. So that's purely a, uh, as I see it, you may disagree, is public relations. It's no, not science. I, I, I do not disagree. Well, the advantage is to is to be rel- is to get the media to pick it up. Yeah, exactly, and it does that obviously. 
Yep. But there can, I think there's a selection bias and um, some poor science that uh, gets mixed into in that process. You know, it depends a lot on how you frame the question. Here's something, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but let me just mention, and people have written about this in papers. You've probably thought about it as well, but you talk about heat waves. Yeah. So you have a definition of a heat wave, whatever it is, above 90 degrees for a certain number of days, whatever. Let's suppose what happens with global warming is that the temperature just goes up by one degree and the distribution of the temperature extremes about the mean doesn't change at all. Right. That's sort of a naive zeroth order approximation. It's possible if you define, say, a heat wave as, say, this 90 degree heat wave, let's call it, the number of those could increase quite dramatically in that, depending on the shape of your, right. the wings of your spectrum yep. of variability. Uh, on the other hand, if you redefine this is an example of how the way you phrase the question makes a big difference, I think. And if I redefine a heat wave as only being classified as such if a temperature goes up to 91 degrees instead of 90 degrees, then as I've set up this problem, the number of heat waves will be unchanged. But what all that happens is that the intensity of the heat wave is increased by one degree. So which of those is the right? You know, I think most people would say when you phrase it in the second way, it doesn't sound like such a big deal even though the number of 90 degree heat waves has increased. Well, from an impact point of view, two, the absolute right? temperature matters, right? Yeah, but that's what you, you have to make that connection. So you have to have a, an impacts model coupled to your heat wave. You can't just talk about, the, and you know this, but it doesn't come through. And a lot of the uh, this attribution stuff is precisely this former way of saying things. It doesn't but, directly connect to impacts. I'm not saying there aren't connections there, but I just find a lot of it kind of naive so there's a lot going on there that I'm not that comfortable with that I think more research, maybe you can't do it in a week, maybe it takes a year, unless you really believe there's a tipping point approaching. It's not like the trends are so profound that it makes a difference whether you do your science in one month rather than one year. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of issues there. I mean, I guess mm -hmm. I don't in principle have a problem with rapid attribution. And even in practice, mm -hmm. I don't a lot of the time. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. you know, it is science that's designed. I mean, first of all, the fact that it's done quickly. I mean, you know, once you establish the methodology, in principle, you shouldn't change it. And it becomes like a weather forecast, right? Those happen quickly and they're not peer reviewed either. Yeah. I mean, if you're turning a crank, you should right. be able to do it in a few days. Yeah. And I think right. the fact that it's designed to be in the media is fine as long as it's done well. I mean, you're saying maybe sometimes it's not, mm -hmm. but- It depends on the question you ask. Is right, right. Well, everything depends on the question you ask, but I think they're designing the question, mm -hmm. trying to design the question in a way that makes an impression on the public because when these extreme events happen, yeah. the reporters are going to call us anyway and say, what does it have right. to do with climate change? So they're, you know, they, sure. people have designed procedures yeah. to try to answer that as responsibly as they can. Yeah. And maybe That's fair. Yeah. I yeah. want to say it a little bit different way. I mean, so we can say, well, look, you know, this, we do our science and it goes in the IPCC report and we communicate it. And yes, I mean, sure. I'm not trying to say that research is irrelevant. I think the examples, you know, you've brought up mm -hmm. the, the accumulated emissions. Yeah, that's hugely important. But I guess what I what has frustrated me, and I'm just curious whether you feel this at all, is, you know, when I was starting out, okay, this is in the 90s, when I was first a graduate student in this field, you know, the politics was contentious even then, but it was still possible, you know, the global warming hadn't proceeded as far, there was less carbon in the atmosphere, the science was certainly more uncertain. And it was a lot easier, for me, at least to feel like, okay, we're going to do our science, we're going to keep communicated, and maybe this is going to get sorted out in time. And it's become harder to sustain that perspective. And, you know, there's some ideal world in which 
a lot of the scientific nuances should matter to policy. But when you look at the actual political process, it's just not capable of behaving that rationally. And it seems to be getting less rational rather than more in some respects, depends which, you know, which faction you, you, you know, you talk to, but it's just, you know, it, the Trump years in particular were very, very challenging because it, it felt mm. like, you know, just by doing what we thought was the establishment thing to do, you know, and we do the research, we communicate it through the le- normal levers, you know, to the political process. We suddenly felt like that was a, some sort of radical, you know, <laughs> or we're somehow now mm. outside of the, you know, the halls of power. And um, so I'm just, I just struggle with that, you know, in the sense that it now, mm. it now feels the climate problem now feels to me like even more of a political problem and less of a science problem than it used to. And even though there's still science that's relevant, it's just, I've found that challenging. And I think a lot of the students find it challenging too, even though some of them may have the same proclivities that we had. They'd like to do science and have it be relevant, but it's becoming harder to to feel that that connection is there. 20 years ago or whatever uh, you want to compare with, why do you feel the problem is more urgent now than it was 20 years ago? Why is it ur- more urgent now? Because well, we've mm-hmm. already were further along on the trajectory, but also but, but twenty years ago, you, you knew that was going to happen twenty years ago. I mean, there's well, I guess what I'm saying is our com- mm-hmm. I'm putting some blame on myself here, but I don't think I'm alone in this. I think mm-hmm. this is something another thing that I've been struggling with. I think for many of us, even in this field, who mm-hmm. what you say is true, we kind of knew it then on some intellectual level, but we didn't act right. like we did. At least I didn't, you know. And it's registering now in a way that it wasn't back then, even though if you'd asked me, mm-hmm. I would have said the same things, but mm-hmm. it's just the urge feels different. Right. And I think part of that is even as scientists, yeah. we're susceptible to the larger yeah. society, how the larger society right. views things. And, and we've mm-hmm. started to feel it's urgent because everybody else that we see these kids getting, right. yeah. you know, you know, right. protesting and it somehow makes it feel different. And we say all these calm things we were saying and putting in IPCC reports, yeah. you know, it didn't have the effect that it is now. So I don't know. Well, maybe, I don't know how to say this exactly, but maybe I don't have quite the same sense of urgency as you do or the younger generation does. During this pandemic period, I've seen statements to the effect that the global warming problem will make this pandemic seem like a minor issue and it will be catastrophic for the world. And I have trouble visualizing the point at which, and it would happen eventually, but at which the global warming uh, problem becomes comparable in intensity to the pandemic, for example, which is hugely impactful on everyone. Well, but it's going to be, but it's usually, but the pandemic is going to end. I mean, it's already getting close to ending. Global warming won't. I I mean, it's little apples and oranges. And and if we stop emitting, okay. I don't want to make uh, this case I mean, first of all, I would say that as global warming involves, and this is the way I've always felt about it when I first started in the field, I don't think my view has changed much. It's being connected to Suki. I don't think his view has changed much either. That um, the farther you go, the more likely you'll be surprised by unknown unknowns or something because we're just not, it's not a simple extrapolation. The responses are getting bigger and more likely we'll be surprised and Mm. potentially uh, in a very... A serious way. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think, and we may disagree on this. I know other people I talk to disagree with me on this. That I think I'm a bit of a technological optimist. 
Mm. I don't know if that's the right, quite the right word, but I can't believe that I can visualize what we'll be capable of in a hundred years technologically. If I go back a hundred years, right? I mean, the usual argument that people make is, you know, people are worrying about the number of horses on the streets of New York City being right, right, right. unsustainable. Yeah. And with genetic engineering and who knows, quantum computing, whatever, I mean, you can't even imagine what uh, the world will be like 100 years from now. So you could say I have a pretty high discount rate mm. in the terms of these models that I'm more concerned when I try to be really realistic, uh, I'm more concerned about the near term than the long term, even though uncontrolled, the long term looks pretty catastrophic. But I think we'll be able to do things that we can't imagine, including right. removing CO2 from the atmosphere. I mean, why not? Right. hundred years from now? Yeah. I'd be surprised if we couldn't do that. I mean, there are things that may be hard to do. Sea level might be harder. So what I'm concerned about is surprises that can occur on the decadal to, say, 50-year timescale. Yeah. I'm not sure what those are. Collapse of the AMOC, perhaps, but is that really catastrophic? It's a major shift, but I don't think it's this collapsing of the AMOC wouldn't be as serious as a pandemic, for example. I don't think. Maybe for the undeveloped world where shifts in rainfall patterns could really be uh, dramatic. But for the developed world, like the United States, I think we can adapt to a collapse of the AMOC. Oh, that's or Europe, a pretty big caveat there. Yeah. I mean, I'm reacting right, in part just to the, yeah. I, I'm more scared about the yeah. short term too, just because I can't, you know, yeah. think that far ahead. But right. but it's the sense that the political process is not going in the right direction. You know, it's not functioning right. well. That scares right. me almost more than the climate. The climate problem is part of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah. the sense that the scientific information. Yeah, that's a bigger. I, I, you know, I some amount of self-doubt, yeah. but feeling that the scientific information is just not, <laughs> we're going in a direction well, where the just, society is moving away almost from knowing how to use it. Well, yeah, it's not just science, it's fake news in general. Right, exactly. Objectivity exactly. seems right. to our, be gradually playing less of a role in everything. Right. Our work uh, exists in a, like in an ecosystem that's, in, you know, in a social and intellectual ecosystem, the political, that's kind of, right. you know, not working the way it used to. So whether it was great before, you know, maybe not, but there's right. some things mm -hmm. that <laughs> we wish we could keep about. Right. Yeah, I'm kind of, I think I share your pessimism there. I think that's bigger than the global warming. I mean, that also relates to the pandemic, obviously. Well, I guess what I'm trying to bring it up is I, I feel it challenging to our us in our role as scientists and academics mm -hmm. because we're producing information that we think should mm -hmm. fit into the, some societal process in a certain way. And so when those don't operate, yeah. I feel some self-doubt. I feel... Um, just thinking again about my own research or what I would advise students who have sort of the same profile that I do, yeah, a profile of interests. I just look at these statements being made about extreme events that are influencing policy more than any statements about climate sensitivity or anything like that. I'm just not comfortable with a lot of those mm. statements. I think we need a lot more research on the science behind mm. that and the attribution statements, whether they're rapid or not, they're almost all purely model. And speaking may seem strange for someone who identifies as a modeler to say this, but I'm very uncomfortable with things which are totally model dependent and don't connect to observed trends in any convincing way quite often. I mean, there are exceptions, obviously. I don't want to lump right. all extremes in one basket. Right. A lot of them have no trends. A lot of them have no simple physical arguments in there one way or the other. Right. I mean, I know some of the deficiencies in our models 
there's still surprises there. I just don't trust them at the level that they're being applied in a lot of this attribution right. attribution work. Well, I, I mean, okay. Science, science should be stronger. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this for a little. I mean, so I struggle with this a lot because I, I do get, you know, I do end up talking right. to the media a lot about these things, even though I don't do attribution right. studies myself for the most part. I think you do do a very balanced job. I, well, thanks, Isaac. I mean, uh, and people like you appreciate it's not it. not easy. But, but I sometimes feel mm -hmm. that I'm underdoing it because, I mean, I guess my the way I would say it mm -hmm. is, I mean, I recently did an interview with somebody who's a fairly knowledgeable, you know, person and was asking me, you know, mm -hmm. I was talking a lot about the uncertainties, but trying to, and the, and the person said, well, okay, if there's this much uncertainty, then why are you worried about anything? And I think, you know, you talked about how there, in some cases, just model and there's no observed trend. Well, sometimes for extreme events, they're rare. So the trends are hard to see. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of kind of extreme events where really we don't exactly know what's happening. But if you, mm -hmm. somebody were to ask you what you think is most likely, you'd probably at least say, the realm of possibilities is expanding, right? I mean, the possible, as far mm -hmm. as we know, you know, right. we can't rule out, you know, the, our ability to rule out changes is getting less, you know, there's more things that, that could mm -hmm. be happening and these surprises are as likely to be bad as good. And, you know, the climate problem as a whole, you know, there's a lot of long-term, there may not be the kind of inertia we thought of in the carbon cycle, but there's a huge social, you know, inertia in that the energy, you know, sure. we just keep mm -hmm. emitting more. So in some sense, you know, from a risk point of view, you know, if you just talk about the uncertainties and you're unwilling to say anything, if, you know, something terrible happens and people say, what does it have to do with global warming? They're really asking you, is global warming, is it, is it a problem or not? And if all you mm -hmm. do is talk about uncertainties, then it sounds mm -hmm. like you don't know anything when really what you really believe is that from a risk point mm -hmm. of view, we're in trouble, right? So somehow mm -hmm. one wants to communicate that essential truth yeah. when the way the media wants to frame the problem is a way that sort of puts the science on the defensive. So we're trying to thread mm -hmm. that needle. And I guess I'm sort of sympathetic to the attribution scientists because I think they're trying to meet mm -hmm. a real need and mm -hmm. you don't want to, you know, you want to do it responsibly, but you also want to give a bottom line impression that's consistent with what based on all the evidence you think is really true. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can't fit all that yeah. into a short thing. So I don't know, it's, this I think is the challenge of it. So, I, but it makes me a little more sympathetic to right. attribution than maybe you are, even though we'd probably agree yeah. on most of the specifics. Yeah, I guess maybe another way of stating, I'm more concerned of the, the impacts of the mean warming itself and changes in the mean hydrologic cycle in the developing world mm. than I am about extremes in the developed world. Mm. I just don't see those on the same level. Mm. Part of that's environmental justice issues, but yeah. So it's just another thing that makes me uncomfortable with this emphasis on extremes, which is just so convenient. Yeah, people jump on it. Yeah, and it resonates so well. With, it just makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree that threading the needle is what you have to do. But, but you know, you see other people out there who are prominent in the media who are, I think, are going overboard. Yeah. I think they're scaring they're scaring the younger generation in ways that may not be healthy. You say, okay, it's wonderful that they're so concerned, but can you be too concerned about something? It's like when we used to get under under our desks uh, when there was a test of a you know nuclear warning system in grade school. We would maybe that was before your time. You know, we would have it was actual, a little before my time, but but know. it wasn't before my time. We didn't do that, but mm -hmm. I grew up in the 70s and early 80s, so it was still the Cold War. So we didn't do the hiding under yeah. the desk thing, but I grew up in New York right. City and we were still very aware yeah. that we could be evaporated, right. you know, blown up at any time. Hiding under your desk didn't do any good. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I mean, I'm just saying, uh, you can, you have to be careful not to scare people too much. Yeah, I don't know. I, maybe yeah. sometimes fear is appropriate. Yeah. Yeah.
I hope I don't sound too much of a uh, critic of the attribution work. I agree, it's nice to have a uh, sort of a frozen methodology for looking at these events. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But the prominence that it has, in the, yeah. I just get uncomfortable with it sometimes. But yeah. Well, I get uncomfortable I with wanna, it too. Criti- but I, I don't want to criticize other people. Yeah. It's work. Yeah. I mean, I get uncomfortable with it too for some of the same mm-hmm. reasons, but I also think that one way or another, mm-hmm. we have to do it because, yeah. you know, these events are hugely powerful in mm. physical fact and in sort of emotional resonance with people. So we're going to get asked about it. You know, we have to say something. Yeah. And so you're making it at whatever you say, you're making an attribution statement, even if it's a negative one. Mm. And so I, I don't think know. it's even harder to make, I mean, making attribution statements about the tendency towards drought in the, in the Middle East or Iraq and Afghanistan and North Africa. Mm. And what role has that played in the instability in those regions? Mm. I just, that's extremely hard. We don't have models to connect, you know, that drawing trend, which we expect on pretty fundamental principles mm-hmm. with what's actually, we see actually happening in those regions, but it's plausible that there's a connection. That kind of thing concerns me more than extreme. But does it concern you more than you. any other, all historical mm-hmm. research, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. All non-physical science you know, all non-natural science scholarship or is of this qualitative nature, right? We, so, I mean, yeah. on some level... I'm, I'm just, I'm not, maybe I misspoke. I am concerned about, I think people should focus on making that connection. I think yeah. there is a connection. Yeah, okay. In that case, I think the world would be different if we didn't have this tendency towards drought, also yeah. in Mexico. I mean, our immigration problems are in large part related to climate change. Yeah, I think um, I'm just saying that any you know any mm-hmm. attempt at understanding these things mm-hmm. is going to have yeah. to rely on qualitative yeah, methods yeah. to some degree. You see, those are the things that actually concern me. I can't, I'm not saying I can contribute to any attribution statements along those lines, but yeah, yeah, okay. it's complicated. But keep up the good work. And, okay, thanks, <laughs> Well, this is part of it. You know, I mean, I like to do this because I think. Um, I mean, as you can tell, I'm doing it partly for my own reasons. I mean, I'm asking you all these questions mm-hmm. and partly because it's therapeutic yeah. for me. But I'm also, you know, because I you're somebody that I've looked up to for my whole career. So I'm, mm-hmm. you know, and I know you think about these issues. So I want to mm-hmm. get your perspective yeah. on it. So thank you for tolerating this mm-hmm. insistent line of questioning for me. You know, I, I, I think there is, you know, I, I, I struggle with like, what is the role of scientists? Some people say that in the global warming debate, scientists have played too much of a role. I mean, obviously there's a role we should be playing, but that once we accept mm-hmm. the scientific yeah, evidence that there is a problem, then it becomes a problem for everybody. And, you know, right. maybe we shouldn't be the ones speaking about it as much as we do. I'm actually right. quite sympathetic to that argument. Yeah, we don't have necessarily have the right expertise at this right. point. But 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 at the same time it still seems we should have some engagement, right. you know? So I, I just kind of I'm wrestling with what that that should be. All right. Well I've kept you for two and a half hours. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I know you have other I don't want to keep you all day, but is there anything else that you want to talk about that we no, haven't no, gotten I think to? We must, we covered it pretty much. All right. Okay. Well thanks so much Isaac. I really appreciate yeah. it. Okay, we covered a lot of ground there. I hope you could hear the wisdom, clarity of thought, and singularity of purpose that make Isaac Held the important scientist and guru figure, frankly, that he is to me and so many others in this field. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Stefan Wiener, and our audio engineer is Livia Wicks. 
My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.